Everybody, welcome back to the hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are talking to I can't I don't know quite how to define the great Don Letts's career. I mean, first and foremost, yes, he is a musician. He was a member of Big Audio Dynamite for a while there in the '80s. Had a hand in writing and producing all of those songs, but he's also a director. He directed some movies, some documentaries. In fact, I think the definitive documentary on punk rock is one that he made called Punk Attitude. There's also a really great documentary about him called Rebel Dread that came out, I don't know, a couple of years ago. He directed tons of videos for other people, including Rat, Clash, Musical Youth, Gap Band. We talk about all of those in here as well. And back in the like late 70s, he ran a store in London that played all these like deep reggae songs that people loved to come to. Kind of like the sex store that Malcolm McLaren worked in and that attracted the Sex Pistols. Anyway, he's just a real, he's a DJ. He's just an impresario. He does a little bit of everything. I think he's one of the key figures, behind the scenes figures, of British music of the last like 45 years, mainly because he influenced so many people that we love. So get this. Well, this is good and bad news. There's some bittersweetness here, unfortunately. Later this month was supposed to be the release of his first ever debut album, Out of Sync. And just as we were getting this episode ready to come out, we learned that that album has been pushed to September. Now, I could hang on to this interview with Don for four more months, but I don't really want to because Don is great and the stories are wonderful and they just keep coming. We talk about Bob Marley, John Rotten, John Lydon, Johnny Rotten, Joe Strummer, Shane McGowan, and millions of other people, Terry Hall, all these people that he interacted with, Chrissy Hind, everybody. So anyway, I... I hope that you'll listen to this and enjoy it and then make a note to yourself that in September, his debut solo album called Out of Sync is going to be out. And I hope you'll go check that out when it comes out. But I didn't feel like hanging on to this forever. So anyway, uh, this is a riot. Don is the best. All right. I hope you enjoy it. He called me from his home in London. Thanks for doing this. Punk Attitude to me is the definitive statement or documentary about what punk is. I've, I saw it when it came out. I've shown it to friends over the years. To me, it says the whole story perfectly because it covers everything from the very beginning that would have started planting the seeds of punk into at what was at the time kind of modern day, you know? I mean, let, I mean let's be clear. What we're talking about is the musical interpretation of punk. Yes. Because I think what I was trying to point out in that documentary is that it wasn't just about music alone, this attitude the spirit could inform whatever you did. My biggest goal really was to put it in the context of an ongoing dynamic. Yes. I was sick of people that kept looking back to what was being perceived as a, a kind of weird anomaly that happened in the late mm -hmm. 70s and early 80s. And I'm like, no, man, 
it's part of an ongoing dynamic. And if you dig it, this thing can take you forward. And that was my sole purpose in making Punk Attitude, is mm -hmm. to keep this thing moving. Yes. Yeah, it's the definitive best statement. Punk is a hard thing sometimes to wrap your arms around or fully define exactly. And you did it perfectly in that documentary. And I think it's even on YouTube. Sometimes it's been on there for free. Um, okay, I have a million questions for you, but we should talk about the new album. You're going to get, you get this question a lot now, I'm sure. It occurred to me that at any point in the last 45 years, you could have made a solo album. And given your connections and your friends back in the day, Scratch Perry could have produced it. Robbie Shakespeare could have played on it. But now was the time. Why was now the time? Was it because of lockdown? You hit it on the nail, man, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I've been busy doing shit, as you pointed out, between the documentaries, the feature films, the music um, videos, yeah. uh, my radio show. I've had a radio show on the BBC for like 16 years, the compilations, the book, the film yeah. that someone made recently made about me. I've kind of been busy. I don't like to sit still. COVID forced me to do that, almost. Okay. Almost, because what happened was, I was in conversation with this brother called Youth, the bass player from Killing Joke. He's been on here. He's time, one of my very favorites, by the way. Right, I so love around him. The, you know, just around the beginning of COVID, we're in conversation. He's like, Don, you should do something yourself. And I'm like, no, nah, you know, I, I'm not really looking to change my lanes now. I've done the big audio dynamite thing, which I'm immensely proud of. Mm -hmm. But I figured that shit was behind me. Anyway. I then get offered the, offered the opportunity to put this compilation album together, Late Night Tales. So good. Uh, version Excursion, which are reggae versions of kind of, they're reggae cover versions, essentially. And they reflect the duality of I am, which is black and British, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So for this Late Night Tales compilation I curated, I also created a dub version of Big Audio Dynamite's hit E equals MC squared with a brother called Gaudi, and we kind of hit it off. You know, we had a lot of similar kind of musical tastes. starting to write tunes with Gaudi based on four bass lines that youth gave me. And yeah, we were, and I was pretty pleased with the results. I'm not sure youth was, but I was definitely <laughs> pleased with the, with the results. Somebody heard them and said, look, you know, this shit sounds kind of cool. COVID goes on for three years. Next thing I know, I've got a, like an album. <laughs> and it's, I guess, you know, on reflection, it's essentially, the soundtrack of my mind with some very cool bass lines. Yeah. And it's co-written with this brother, an Italian producer called Gaudi, who's a fucking mm. genius. Mm. When you finish this, Google the brother, you won't okay. believe the things he's had a hand in. Okay. And um, I was lucky enough to have some guest vocalists, you know, not strangers to me, people that I knew as friends, that I thought could relate to what I was doing. 
And that includes a lady called uh, Zoe Devlin Love, who's with the Alabama Three. Um, Holly Cook, yep. who's like the queen of lovers rock in the UK and beyond. I'm really honored to have the brother Wayne Coyne from yes. the Flame Lips on one track. And I'm very fortunate and sad to say that I have two tracks recorded with the late Terry Hall yeah. of the specials on there as well. And obviously we lost him at the end of last year. And, uh, you know, I'm still feeling that yes. as yeah. many people are. Yes. How uh, do we know what happened with Terry? Were you in touch with him up until, I mean, obviously you're friendly and you go way back. What happened? Do we know? Man, I mean, it's common knowledge. I mean, you know, it was cancer related. Was it? Okay. You know, I was yeah. DJing. DJ, yeah, it's nothing weird, you know. Well, okay. you know, it's yeah. life. Yes. You know, I mean, yes. you know, I don't want to talk, you know, it's kind of, yeah, you'll get me fucked okay. up with this podcast. Yeah. But we yeah. were DJing together last summer. Okay. And, you know, this thing happened rather quickly, you know, and it took yeah. us all by surprise. Yeah. It's, um, it's, Beautiful and also surreal listening to the songs that include him on your album because um, you heard it, it has. Oh yeah, I've been, I've listened to it several times. Oh shit! Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, there's the universe knows what you've done, and yeah. there's the doorman, both featuring yeah. Terry. Now they're just doing what they did before. But then they did little, but now they want more. Hey, if you want what's on the table already been disabled. It's all about new values. Who knows the answer? Who knows the way? Every fool's gonna have their say. Fake news and information. That's the stuff that built the nation. You might think that you have one. You might think it's harmless fun. There's no place for you to run When the universe knows what you've done And it's beautiful but also surreal because I'm guessing this might be one of the last things he would have done before passing, I don't know how long this has been gestating, but there's no new specials music that I'm aware of. I, I'm not privy to what was going down pre him yeah. going down. And yeah. Um, yeah. I don't really want to play on okay. the, any of that. You know, that's not yeah. cool. Okay. And not okay. really, yeah. It's just okay. an a really unfortunate thing that he's not around to kind of do it's more really stuff with specials. I love they were about They were about to work on a new album. Oh, really? Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Never mind Don Letts, man. Yeah, the they were yeah. the guys just about to take off on something new. Oh man. You know? Oh man. And after um, and after the, the last album, I mean, damn, what a comeback that was. Yes, it did. It did really well in the charts you and know? everything. And the people loved that brother, man. The yes. People absolutely loved that brother. Yes. Because you know, he stayed in touch. You know, he had this thing of being able to connect with the big and obvious problems like racism and politics. But yes. he he was so able to connect with the, the, the smaller things in life, mm -hmm. you know, like mental issues and things like yes. that. Was, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, he was, yeah. Anyway, he was obviously a really sensitive soul. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I wanted to ask you about the song you do with your daughter, Honor, Civilization. Stranded all alone. Please can I 
she an yeah. aspiring musician too? Not at all. No. I just heard her singing with when we I was working on the track, I heard her singing along in the house. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I like the tone of her voice. And I've heard about this theory about, you know, people re- relatives having some kind of musical connection through their blood DNA. harmonies. Blood harmonies. Exactly yes. when it comes yeah. to harmonies. Yep. And uh it was a little bit of that 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 kind of got me thinking about it, and also an experience. Basically, that song was inspired by my first trip to Africa, mm. where I realized I was so disconnected from my perceived, my well, they are my roots, there's no denying that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I kind of realized that I was a different animal. I was this black British thing. And although that might be part of me, it was far from the sum total of who I was. So then about three or four years ago, I took my daughter, Honor, to Jamaica for the first time. Because that's where my parents are from. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, in the same way that I was disconnected from Africa, she was totally disconnected from Jamaica. I mean, she knew about the reggae and the this and that. But you know what I mean? You could tell that her education had informed her about a lot of shit. I mean, she's pretty hip, but not about that basic stuff that grounds us. Yeah. So I realized that the story wasn't just about me and my experience in Africa. I think anybody that's been removed from their situation or grown up in another culture can relate to it, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, I, yeah. Something I wondered about, um, whenever you talk to, and we're getting off the album here for a minute, but whenever you talk to a Black person whose history includes the 60s and 70s, no matter where they are, it involves racism. And I know, as an American, what American racism looks like. What does British racism look like? Oh, um, man, how long you got? I was watching that new Chris Rock thing the other day yes, on Netflix, yes. and he was talking about Meghan Markle. And he said, look, you know, she was talking about, oh, man, I didn't know they were so racist. And he said, look, you know, they're the OGs of colonialism. You know, I, I, I mean, that pretty much says it all. You know what I mean? And the thing is, OK, we didn't have the Ku Klux Klan, but what we had was institutionalized racism, which is almost more dangerous. It's more insidious. Mm-hmm. You know, Ku Klux Klan, you could see that, see that shit going on. It could force you to get your shit together and react and change that situation. Yeah. When it's institutionalized, it's hard to put your finger on it, man. It's a it's, it's a tricky snake, you know. So yeah. it's it's there, but it's not so in your face. Yeah. I mean, there's an American story here when it goes back to slavery and civil rights and all that kind of stuff. I just wonder what's the the impetus of British racism, other than just an otherness. These people don't look like me. And so, therefore, they have no value. Back Dennis Seaton from Musical Youth was on here a few years ago, and we were talking about this similar thing because he obviously, cut, you know, his family and many others, Neville Staples, Linville Golding, these people's families came to the UK in much like, you know. Yeah, like my a, parents. We could, you're talking about the Windrush generation yes, who came yes. to the UK to help rebuild the country after the Second World War and face nothing but racism. But yeah. on the upside of that, you know, along with their hopes and dreams and their cheap labor, they also brought their culture. And it was their culture. You've got no bigger testament to the impact of afro beaten culture on the UK than the specials, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I just wondered what, I mean, it's and just- And by the way, I did I did the video for De- uh, Dennis's band, at Mo- uh, Musical Youth. I did oh, the I know you did. Past the Duchy. But did you know that was the first black video on MTV? I know that because you've said it. That is crazy. I never realized that. No, it ain't just because Don Lett said it. Trust me, if you do your homework, the popular popular theory is that it's Billie Jean that was the Uh first black video. But it wasn't. 
I think Musical Youth was on about six six weeks before. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? Yeah. So speaking of your videos, um, yeah. it I uh, Martin Briley has been on here, and mm. when I saw that you oh, had directed, shit. you got me there. You got yes. me there. Go Okay, so when I saw that you had directed his Put Your Hands on the Screen video, yeah. I reached out to him, and I said, tell me about working with Don. And he was like, Don is the loveliest man. And he said, we filmed that video in Utah, which is where That's I'm right. from originally. And he yeah. said they had never seen anyone with dreads before. So I know there's a religious aspect or theme to that song. Why did you film that in Utah? And tell me any stories about it, because well, that's I'm gonna where I grew up. I'm going to tell you the truth. The, the honest reason that why that video happened in Utah is simply this. At that time, I was living in LA, uh, West Hollywood, working for a company called Limelight, a big fuck off video production company. They did Billie Jean, actually. Mm. And uh, what would happen is different videos, um, songs would come in every week and and us directors would pitch the thing that appealed to us. And that week, um, that tune came in, and for whatever reason, to, no disrespect to Martin, but the reason I took the gig is that the Osmonds had a studio in Utah. We're talking about the Osmond brothers here. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And they were trying to get production companies to use their facility. Uh -huh. And they were going to fly... the potential director, any potential directors that were interested in their private jet to see their studios, to see their facilities. I don't think I listened to Martin's track. I thought, that sounds like a trip. Osmond's private jet, Utah, mountains. That's it for a little black man from Brixton. That was like the shit. And actually I did like the, and the whole religious thing and the whole um, TV uh -huh. religious thing was right up the my street. I've sure. seen Elmer Gantry, man. Um, <laughs> So that was really the impetus for that job happening. It was the Osmonds touting for work, me wanting to just be on a private jet and dig that yeah. whole LA shit yeah. and get the opportunity to do a video that I'm really, really pleased with, particularly considering the theme. Yeah. You know, because that whole middle America, I mean, that, you know, that middle American thing, that's still very much a, a serious uh, problem. It's happening all over again. The new grift is yeah. politics, if you ask yeah, me. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, if Jerry Falwell or Jim whatever their names were back back from back in the day, we're still at it. They'd be Republicans running yeah, for don't something. Get me, listen, I don't want to get into your politics, man. Mine are tough enough. That's true. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Um, okay, so let me ask you about a couple other videos. Uh, the Rock the Casbah video, which is one of the ones you're most known for, that was my introduction to The Clash because I was like 9 or 10 when that song yep. came out. So I didn't know who anyone was. I didn't know any history or anything like that. I just saw that video. And when, when Mick rips that hat off with that's covering his face yeah. it was so jarring to me and it, i was frightened beforehand what was the thought process of having him have his face covered for that video and then ripping it off because it it scared to death a 10 year old boy well the, hold on a second you're making it sound like the dude's ugly and he was no, a no, no, no. it's scared because it's like why is he covered and then when it comes off it's this big reveal okay. and i was I like said, all right here's another what? exclusive for you although people okay. this story is out there Okay. So, Mick, you know, he could be a miserable bastard on the best of days. He was a moody <laughs> fuck. And uh, one day he was pissed off about something. And his way of protesting on that day when we were going to shoot the video, everyone had turned up in their kind of urban streetwear kind of thing, you know, that military look. And he turns up wearing a pair of red long johns and black Dr. Martin boots. And I said to him, Mick, you look like a goddamn matchstick. 
And I said, furthermore, you have to remember this one thing. Film is forever. Uh-huh. So if you look like a dick on film today, you're going to look like a dick forever. Mick quickly ran away and changed, you know, into the gear. But he was still a bit pissed off. So he wore that mask. That was his way of sort of being stubborn. And when Joe Pill pulls it off, that wasn't choreographed. That was a thing happening real time. Really? And so that's the backstory. It was, it was Mick and his tantrums. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love the brother. Of course. Of course. You know. um, okay. Let's, I have some other videos I want to ask you about, but something that a, a through line to your career, a thing that I feel like connects everything is that you might just be the guy with the best weed. Not just the best. Whoa, music. Whoa, we'll talk whoa, about dude, that. In a I minute. need to come back to America. You know, I'm gonna, you know, I won't get through customs. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> dude. But that seems to be kind of the social glue. Maybe I'm misreading. Yeah, all but that's of nothing this. to do with Don Lex, man. That's oh, okay. the power of the herb. Yes. Okay. You know what I mean? You yeah. Know, it opens doors. You know. Yes, you know. it does. It does. That's what I'm noticing. Is that I'm wondering if, like, when you've got Acme Attractions, you've got your store and your blasting dub reggae out into the streets and people like to come and hang out with you. I wonder if the reason why it extends beyond just hanging out in the store is because herb is well, the... let's put it this way. I mean, you put it one way, I'll put it this way. It was an exchange okay. of culture. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. It was an exchange of culture, man. And if anything, it's a testament to the power of culture to unite the people and inspire creativity. And yes. sometimes that was through a baseline and sometimes that was via a spliff. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes, okay. you know, it would be the punk rockers turning me onto the whole DIY thing and inspiring me to pick up a movie camera and become Don Letts, the filmmaker. It was very much about this cultural exchange. Okay, that makes sense. I can see that. You realize that without you, uh, things like London Calling doesn't exist. Every- whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Rewind that, man. I can't take that. No, I, really, can. I can't take that. The video I- wouldn't exist. Well, I yes, but if it feels like everybody's story from back then, whether it's John Rotten, one of the Clash guys, Chrissy Hind, everybody's story starts with I was hanging out at Don Lett's place, and he was playing dub dub reggae records, which no one had heard, couldn't find anywhere, and that is a huge influence on that period of music. Your ground zero. That's how I view it from the outside. But you can say that shit, but I can't. Otherwise, no, I know, but it's true. I mean, listen, like I said, I was fortunate enough to interact with these people. And, you know, they brought the DIY culture and the attitude and the spirit. I brought the bass lines and the spliff. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you did. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it was like the cultural conversation. It wasn't all about me. You know, listen, people like John Joe Strummer and, <clears throat> and John Lydon, for instance, and Paul Simonon, they didn't need Don Letts to turn them on to reggae. Trust me, mm-hmm. these brothers were here. I mean, I might have dub tunes they would never have heard. But mm-hmm. people like Lydon in particular, Strummer and Paul Simonon, they were hip to reggae before I came along. The people I hip to reggae were all the white people that didn't interact with black people in the late 70s. And back then... That was a goddamn lot of white people. We're talking about all the people from the suburbs. Because again, again, let me put Don Letts in context. Before I came on the scene playing reggae tunes to punk rockers at the Roxy in London, you know, which was the, the UK's first 
punk rock venue, Trojan Records, had launched in 1968. And that label provided the soundtrack to the UK's first multiracial subculture, style-driven subculture. And believe it or not, I'm talking about skinheads. Mm. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm talking about the fashion version, not the fascist version that right. came along in the early 70s. Because when that shit started, it was a mashup of these white working class kids who were like the younger brothers of mods. Mm -hmm. That was a style thing that had gone before with the kind of rude boy culture that we brought over from Jamaica. That's how Skinhead started. Obviously, it ended up somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But around, you know, so people like John Lydons and your Strummers and your Paul Simmons, they were part of all that shit. So they would have been hip to Jamaican music. Okay. You know what I mean? Like I say, so, yeah. you know, I don't, you know, I was part of an ongoing dynamic. Okay. I had, I'd have to say really was started by Trojan Records in 1968. I could see that. And, you're included. You know, there's a great documentary on Trojan Records, by the way, which you're featured in uh, for anyone who doesn't know. So one thing I'm curious is how are you getting your hands on all these deeply underground dub reggae records? Are you, is someone sending you them from Jamaica, a friend or a family member? Well, hold up a second. Now, let's rewind, because back in the day, what you would do is you'd go to your local, you know, I lived in Brixton, which is a yes. strong Jamaican community. And there's a couple of record shops. And on a Friday, you'd go with the, the little bit, bit of money that you would earned, and they'd have all the imports from Jamaica. Okay. And they'd be, the guy behind the deck, you know, like old school yes. shit. Yes, you yes. Know, and you'd put your hand up and be like, hold me one of them, hold me one of them. Mm -hmm. Now we put, re fast forward to the 21st century. That's like an old language. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, I get stuff, you know, stuff via the internet, man, to be cool dubs that I like actually get pressed to vinyl. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why when I DJ out now, I DJ out on CDs because 70% of the stuff I play doesn't get made put onto vinyl. And if you yeah. only played vinyl, I'd be playing kind of retro sets. Yeah. And I can't do that. I pay respect to the past, but I've got to keep moving forward, man. Mm -hmm. Do know. you have, okay, so what is your go to deep reggae track? Something that we don't know. Man, you can't ask somebody that's as old as rock and roll that question. <laughs> oh, come on. I mean, my, sta my standard answer to that would be a classic, you know, one of the things that captured my imagination as a youth was uh -huh. uh, Augustus Pablo's King Tubby Meets the Rockers Uptown. You want, you know, and for an album, I'd say go to Keith Hudson's Pick a Dub. Okay. You know, or, uh, Lee Scratch Perry's Blackboard Jungle. You know, they were the things that blew my mind as a child. I was like, what the fuck is this? Yes. Yes. Okay. You know, the whole idea of dub, you know, dub and putting the, the bass center stage, Absolutely. using the mixing desk as an actual instrument, you know, or bouncing 
stuff between four, two, four track tapes. You know, that's all DIY. That's all punk rock, man. That yes. was Jamaica's punk rock, you know, the creation yeah. of Doug. Yes. Let me ask you this. In your in the documentary about you, Rebel Dread, which I watched this weekend, um, it talks about your friendship or connection with Bob Marley before he passed. And I it's I wondered, it sounded almost as if that you had he lived, you would have possibly persuading him into uh embracing some punk or some ska into his sound. Had he lived, do you think he would have been a part somehow of the two-tone scene at all? Hey, let me tell you this about Bob, right? Ain't nobody could persuade him to do fuck oh, all. Please. Trust me, Patrick. <laughs> okay. Bob, you know, you know, no, you know, he knew what he was doing. Ain't no one, uh -huh. But he was open-minded. The brother was open-minded, as our interaction proved. That, you know, because when he first heard about punk, he wasn't too taken by it, but he was getting his information via the tabloid press. With greater exposure, he opened his mind to the idea and realized we were like-minded rebels and wrote the song Punky Reggae Party. So the brother was open. Where he would have been had he lived, I, you know, you know, I think he Who would knows? have been Bob Marley. Okay. You know. Okay. I just it sounded as if in that doc that you were right, starting to kind of just like everyone else, like I was saying earlier, you're ground zero for so many people's love and embrace of reggae and dub and merging punk and ska together. And I wonder if well, it would have been- I, 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 I mean, too. I got to own the fact that when he was staying here, he was living here in 1977, after he'd been shot in Jamaica, and he was staying around the corner from the shop I was running, Acme Attractions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went around there one day and I was wearing these bondage trousers and he kind of started to, mo you know, he said, you know, Don Letts, you look like one of those nasty punk rockers. And I'd like, I had to stand my ground and tell the brother he was wrong. And uh, three months later, a somewhat better informed Bob did indeed embrace the whole okay. punk rock scene and write that song. Mm. So, you know, it, it wasn't like he got it straight away. But like I said, he remained open. Okay. Yeah, I was curious. I was starting to feel that way when I was watching the show. I want to ask you about Acme because um, in relation to sex, the store... <laughs> an American gets an idea that there is, it's the King's Road or something. There's a, a street where it is the place to be. And when I think of places now that are like head shops or sex shops, they don't have windows. They don't, they look very like closed off. You kind of have to secretly go in them. Were you and sex near each other on the same street? Why was that such a cultural get together? Okay, first all you've got to understand we're talking about the uk here and in the uk the inter the, the, the mix between style fashion and music like they're inseparable you yeah. know that's why you've had all these different style driven subcultures in the last half of the 20th century and the british were like masters of that shit mm -hmm. and uh in the late 70s you know the you know, a lot of young people weren't turned on by what was going on in the mainstream. So they gravitated to these so-called alternative places like the King's Road, Chelsea. You know, back before that, in the 60s, it would have been in Not to Notting Hill Gate or something. You know, that was like a, when the whole Bohemian thing was going on. Mm -hmm. Anyway, mid-70s, King's Road, Chelsea, there's only two shops that these young people can relate to. One was my shop, Acme Attractions. The other was Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood shop, Sex. And they were about walking five minutes, 10 minutes. I can't do it in, you know, I guess yeah. a quarter of a mile between okay. the two shops. And these kind of, what shall we call them? Disaffected white youth would kind of bounce 
between these two shops with nothing to do. This is like 75, 76, just before punk rock explodes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, you know, everybody that was anybody in the UK punk scene passed through Acme Attractions and sex. But more people hung out in my shop because I was playing that dub reggae man and they loved mm -hmm. my soundtrack. I could see that. Um, you had mentioned in the documentary what an impact Malcolm had on you and how much he taught yeah, you. Yeah, he did. And a lot true. of people say that. But in some ways, he almost seems also like a caricature, like a carnival barker. Was he for real? What did he instill in you? He's, he was all those things, man. Uh -huh. He was all those things. He was like, you know, it was all smoke and mirrors, magician and Sengali. And he was working out the shit himself. Yeah. You know what I mean? But he had a great vision, Alcum. He wasn't necessarily a nice guy. But then, I, you know, it's often said nice people don't have great ideas, man. And Malcolm's kind of a good example of that. Personally, he was an inspiration to me. I met the guy when I was like 14, 15, about three or four years before punk rock exploded. And it was Malcolm that made me understand I could be part of all this shit that I was so enamored with. I didn't have to be just a fan, just a bystander. All I had to do was have an idea and have the motivation, man. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was the one that also helped me to kind of join the countercultural dots you know, to make me realize that these things don't happen in isolation, that they have this heritage and this tradition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and mm -hmm. no, really, I, I owe a brother big time, big time. And Vivian, too, I got to hang out when Malcolm was in New York managing the New York Dolls. I was hanging out with Vivian. And, you know, she used to take me to all these like weird late night movies. You know, I'm watching Alejandro Jorodowski's El Topo, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. And, uh, yeah, a major part of my upbringing and my open-mindedness okay you've talked openly too about similar feelings about john Lydon and what a deep person he is which uh again at face value the caricature that's put out there on tv or whatever you don't yeah. necessarily see that but you feel this way well okay so the john Lydon i'm talking about and the john Lydon you're talking about probably two different people because mm. i struggle with the person that he is now Having said that, I'm always <laughs> going to have a soft spot in my heart for the first brother to take me to Jamaica. Uh -huh. Not to mention what a great body of work, you know. Some of the moves of late in the 21st century have totally thrown me. Uh -huh. But yeah, you can never write the brother off. That's all I can say. Yeah. Just but about Trump, everybody. Give me a break. But the whole Trump, Sean, give me a break with that. Come on. <laughs> I don't but, get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, all right. All right. Yeah. The only thing I can yeah. think of is that he embraces hey, God that. God bless him. It, uh, wait, wait, God bless him. He was never predictable. That's true. That's true. You know, he was never predictable. You know. And the only thing I can think of is that he embraces that because it feels like the punk thing to do, the agitated thing to do. But yeah, yeah, yeah I don't you're like, uh, yeah, enough. Yeah. Said, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Let's talk about Big Audio Dynamite for a minute. My, I love Big Audio Dynamite. I'm so we all pleased. do. Yes. I'm so pleased that I got honored to I, I got to write tunes with Mick Jones, man. Yes, How you did. Cool is that? Yeah, no, I'm really, really pleased with that, man. It they were um, incredible. We all love Big Audio Dynamite. The thing I'm fuzzy about is other than writing the tunes, are you a musician at all? Other than the sampling I, and listen, the stuff like what did you do? Were you like Bez? Uh, listen, I'm back then and as we as we are to this day. I cannot play a fucking thing. Well, actually, I rewind that. I can play ideas. 
Okay, yes, okay. I'm great at playing ideas, man. I mean, all right, so people ask me, how, for instance, this new album, how do I put an album together? I uh, wrote 99.9% of the lyrics. Uh-huh. You know, and that's good enough for me right there. I mean, the thing in any equation, you need to justify the space you occupy. Otherwise, you are baggage. Yes. In Big Audio Dynamite, when I started, I'm doing all the sample and dialogue shit because I couldn't play anything. But then I realized you don't get paid for stealing other people's shit. And also, I didn't feel like I was justifying my space. So I, with mixed help, I throw myself into writing lyrics. I'm like, yo, I've got to do more than the sample of dialogue thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first song I ever wrote with Mick was E equals MC squared. And if you check all the albums, I've co-written 60% of the songs with yes. Mick. So boom, yeah. right there. You know, apparently I can hold a note, you know, mm -hmm. and obviously I was doing the whole thing on stage. But on stage, my keyboard had stickers on to show me what to do. No, <laughs> dig it. And sometimes... You know, when we'd be playing in front of like 100,000 people supporting you too, <laughs> I'd lift up my keyboard and show everybody, look, this is fucking punk rock, man. You know, it ain't about the um, technique. It's about the idea. Yeah, you know? yeah. Okay, so fast forward. I'm not in Big Audio Dynamite. Here we are, out of sync. It's coming out at the end of May. How the fuck did I do that? Okay, like I said, out lyrics 95%, lyrics 95%, written by yours truly there's um i guess spoken word i guess they call it there's a bit of yeah. that i can hold a note i guess <laughs> i can hold a note is that singing you know ask james <laughs> brown i don't know what to tell you about that one and uh with the help of gaudi i can do melodies and i'm yes. good at coming up with bass lines yes so between all of that i can stand my ground and say yeah this is yeah. what i did having said that this album would not have been possible without the production and musical skills of this brother, Gaudi. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't know, probably know who I'm talking about. And a lot of people don't. But when I finish, Wikipedia, the brother, I he's will. had a hand in so many. He's like this weird missing link, man. Okay. And like me, he's tuned into sort of sound system bass culture. But he also grew up on pop music like I did. Mm -hmm. You know, for us, pop's not a dirty word. A, mm -hmm. There was a lot of intelligent, and it can be a lot of intelligence. And he marries the two. And that's what my album reflect, reflects, really, is the duality of my existence, which is yes. Black and British. Yes. You know, that's why I'm the rebel dread. Yes. Because when I was growing up, I had reggae coming in this year and rock and pop coming in this year. Mm -hmm. Open to both, man. Yes. You know, it I think perfectly the album really does reflects... That. Yeah, reflect here yeah, what I what I'm about, what I grew up on, yes. yeah, what I'm into. I agree. You know, it's I got to say it's unashamedly grown up. You know, because I mm -hmm. I got no problem. I'm 67, but I ain't like what 67 <laughs> used to be in my parents' no, day. You know what's done that? Music, music yes. changed the goddamn landscape, man. Sure has. You know, believe me. I mean, I'm here as living proof. It sure um, has. Yes, and it's kept you young. Yeah. Not to mention this. Yeah, you know what's funny? I don't desire because of music. I'm really comfortable. Because if I was young, I wouldn't have listened, heard all this, grown up on all the shit. You know, I wouldn't have seen the Who at 14 years old. I wouldn't have seen the Pistols and the Clash and you know Marvin Gaye and Steve. You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, so I yeah, I don't desire to be young. In mm -hmm. fact, you know, I'm 67 and loving it. Yeah, I told you, I'm as old as rock and roll, dude. Yes, you oh, are. Come on. And I'm, yes, you and are. I'm still standing. That's come right. On. You sure are. Yeah, okay. The music did that. 
It did. Uh, let me ask you some questions. We have some Patreon supporters, and uh, I always tell them who I'm interviewing, and they can submit some questions if they want. A couple of them submitted several questions. I've been trying to work them into this. One of them in particular, Chris Slemp, wants to know, I'm dying to know where the come on and listen keenly while I play a brand new musical biscuit sample comes from. Sit tight and listen keenly while I play for you know a brand new musical biscuit. I hope you realize you're playing a they come jamaica's okay. most famous film directed mm -hmm. by perry hensel got released in the early 70s and also the inspiration for my first feature film dancehall queen which came out in 1997 yes that movie is a classic the soundtrack is a classic you know what i watched recently that i really loved too was rockers yeah i've yeah, never seen rockers yeah. i love that one too Chris and another one of our listeners, Sugar Mouse, 10 Upping Street is probably his favorite bad album. And um, he likes it specifically for many reasons, but one of them is because Joe is kind of back hanging around. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he had heard that Joe and Mick had recorded an album's worth of material that never saw the light of day. Do you know about this? No, the only track I know about is two tracks, one called uh, US North and the other one was called Dog, on, Dog in a Satellite. Okay. You know, and demo versions of those are out there for people that want to do yes. become internet detectives. But um, nah, I don't see how that. Okay. I mean, that might have been Joe's, well, indeed, it was Joe's intention to try and get Mac, Mick back in the clash. But mm -hmm. Big Audio, Big Audio Dynamite was happening, man. You know, yes, so it was. Mick, Mick didn't want to go backwards. And uh, yeah, no, I don't. I think that's probably a, a little bit of a myth. Was there ever? talks of Mick saying to Joe and maybe even Topper, like, my band's hot right now, yours isn't. Why don't you hop on my train and we do big audio dynamite? Nah, nah no, he wouldn't. No, nah, he ain't that cold-blooded. Mick can be cold, but he would have to get rid of Leo and he would have had to get rid of you know, some of our guys. True, and good some point. of our guys, I mean, big audio dynamite wasn't just me and Mick. You know, there was Leo Williams on bass, Greg Roberts on drums, and Dan Donovan on keyboards. Good point. Good point. We were like the uh, Magnificent Seven, but there was five of us. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. Why did you end up leaving? And you left right before Rush and The Globe, and those were even bigger hits than the ones you guys had had. I was getting a bit frustrated with, you know, the business. Yeah. I'll put it, you know, I'll, 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 yeah. But I mean, you know, it ain't no secret. But and also, I, I was writing these lyrics that were getting more personal. And I was like, well, it's a bit weird for Mick to sing them. And between that and ego, I ended up leaving the band and starting a group called Screaming Target. Lesson to be learned here, folks, is ego is a dangerous thing. <laughs> Having said that, again, you know, when I, I don't mess up, you know, I don't waste space. Yeah, I stand by 70% of the songs on there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Yeah, Screaming um, Target, the album is called Hometown Hi-Fi. I think it came out in like 1991. 
Yeah, I didn't know about that one until. I mean, um, what's his name? Greg and Leo from BAD were part of that band. Oh, oh, really? They left shortly after me. And also, it's got, you know, guest vocals from who is it? Um, Chris Chrissy Hines is on there. Oh, Chrissy Hines does the guest vocal on it. And a gentleman called Pete Wiley. I don't know. Yes, from UFO. He's on there as well. Yes. Album Screaming Target, Hometown Hi Fi. Uh, okay. I think it's on Apple. I think it's okay. on Apple. We'll find it. We'll find it. Play a little bit of it. Um, I think my favorite Big Audio Dynamite song is just play the music. Move my feet and touch my soul. Bass sounds on me. Rock and roll. Just play Oh, see, that's the lyrics. I wrote the lyrics to that. All the lyrics to that. Ooh, I did. Really? Yeah, you see? Yeah. I love that it wasn't one. Ju- it wasn't just dark glasses, folks. <laughs> now, that song started to, it feel. It felt like at the time, make some inroads into pop radio as opposed to like alternative radio. Was there an intention to kind of no, break no, the no, band no, no, bigger no, in the no, States? No, no, no. There was never an intention to break into any fucking chart. And no, that's not true. I mean, E equals MC squared was in pop charts all over the place. Okay. That okay. was our first okay. pop chart. But again, it wasn't written with pop intention. We're just of that generation, man. Yeah, true. You know, we're all of the same age. And for us, we remember intelligent pop music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The difference is we brought in some Jamaican bass lines and some New York hip hop beats and the whole sample and dialogue thing mm-hmm. and dragged true. it into the 20th, well, the end of the 20th century. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I want to ask you about a couple more of your uh, videos. Your, <laughs> crazily enough, your probably most famous video is the rat round and round video. I've heard you tell the story of being at Limelight and like you were saying about Martin, the name rat just comes across the screen. And if I remember correctly, you know that there's a connection to Milton Berle. And so you're like, hey, if I can get you to get Milton Berle on this video, I'll do it. That's exactly it went down because I'm old enough to remember to know that Milton Berle is serious old school Hollywood. I mean, I don't know if there's any of that generation left anymore. I know. I don't think you so. Know, and I was just glad to be in the presence of the man and work with him. And it's funny, yeah. I say work with him. When he was on the set, he was telling me what to do. I ain't going to lie. And I let the brother do, you know, it's Milton Berle. You know, he's like, no, darling, we'll put the <laughs> camera here and I'm going to stand here. Yeah. Brother, you know, and then I did the rest with the band. But it was cool. It was a yeah. real privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Just to be in the presence of that real old school Hollywood. It is crazy. You know, young, people and... won't, young people won't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of us remember. I remember that video so well. Did you get to know the guys at all? Do you? Nah, no, nah. no. Now, what no. you did is, you know, I mean, I remember when they walked in and I looked at them and they looked at me and it was like this weird kind of cultural standoff. It's like, what uh-huh. the fuck? <laughs> but um, I, was, I was hip to hair metal. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not out of sure. the loop. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I like a challenge. I mean, like I say, that week, okay, you know, if something else had been on the slate that obviously spoke to me, I probably would have been on it. But, you know, I can always find, there's always, if you're a filmmaker, there's always a reason to make a film, man, even if you want to test out something that you want to do later on for yourself. Yes. And, uh, you know, that was a because when that came out, they were on tour supporting Motley Crue. 
and a video came out, blew up on MTV, and they had to swap the billing. Yes. You know, that was a trip, man, yeah. It's huge. And it's a great song, you know? It's uh, it's crazy to me. Now, you, I think on your website, you talk a little bit about um, the Gap Band video to Party Train and how they had shown up that day kind of out of it. And so... Um, well, uh, yeah, I don't want to get sued by anybody, but yeah, no. they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. The brothers had turned up suitably rock and roll, let's say that. Rock and soul. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I love the Gap Band. They're one of my top five favorite funk or R&B bands ever. And I, Listen, I that, video, that video killed it in the yes. States, man. Absolutely. What are you talking about? Party train, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah it's funny. I had occasion to look at that the other day. And uh, I went back to Santa Monica, Venice Beach, along there, like, uh, last year. It's like a goddamn ghost town with tumbleweed yeah. and shit. So that video, if nothing else, it really captures the essence of what it was it like does. back in the day in the eighties, along that you know that drag there. Yes. You know, even Charlotte... got the brother, on, even got the brother on the skateboard with the white turban, who yes. was like a permanent fixture. I, I yes. can't remember his name. He's legendary in those parts. That is great. Yes, and Charlie's in his little speedo dancing on the beach, and there's bikini women everywhere, and just looks like a party. The, body, the bodybuilders, all the bodybuilders. Yes. It, it was like a big yeah. Fellini, Fellini-esque parade. Yes, yes. Okay, speaking of things you filmed, watching the punk rock movie over again, it kicks off basically with Sean McGowan. How are you watching that? How are you watching that? Because there's some horrible versions of that out there. So good question. It was streaming on, I think the channel's called Tubi here in the States. What does it look like? But what does it look and sound like? It looks pretty good. Um, Really? Yes, it's interesting you asked me this because... I looked it up on Wikipedia while I was watching, and Wikipedia gave this whole, you know, there's two minutes of Susie Sue putting on makeup, and then there's 30 seconds of this band playing or 20 seconds of that. Uh, One thing it didn't include on on Wikipedia that I saw in the movie were a couple of scenes of people shooting up and a scene of a guy slashing his stomach with a razor blade. Those were not on Wikipedia, but they were in the movie. Who was shooting up? Couple of punks in the toilet. Actually, okay. the guy's gone. The guy's dead now. So I figured. Sadly, one of them was Keith Levine. I wondered. Yeah, I thought so. One of them was Keith. I mean, listen, it's no secret. I mean, you know, I mean, and it, but by by the way, his death has nothing to do. I mean, it's no, he is a punk, obviously. Right, he just died um, recently. And it was Keith, but it was you know a lot. But a lot of the punks back then were either smoking weed or shooting speed. You know, mm-hmm. well, that's not true. A few of them were shooting the speed, and some of them gravitated to something else when a certain bunch uh-huh. of people came to town. Uh-huh. <laughs> nah, I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but this is all common knowledge, man. Mm-hmm. When is. Johnny came to town and Nancy Spongebob came to town, the speed turned to something else and that devastated, you know, we all know how that all played out with yes. Sid and Nancy yeah. and Ray were, you know. Yeah. Um, hey. Yeah. You know. It, well, it was a great movie but, and oh, if nothing hey, else... Don't, hey, don't do it, folks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> don't do it. Yeah, just don't um, just was, say no. Life, life's tough enough. That's right. It's a fantastic document or time capsule of the time that will never, you know, can never be reinterpreted or redone again. Speaking specifically of Shane McGowan, that was back in his nipple erector days, and he's pogoing around and picking fights, and his, he still has all his teeth, and they're relatively like intact. And I was thinking when he becomes the poet laureate of the pogues. And tells the writes these gorgeous Irish 
pop rock songs, did you would you have ever guessed that the guy that you knew pogoing around in a punk band would have that kind of talent? You're frozen, but I'll pick it up in a minute. Let's make, okay. Uh, you're you're yeah. talking about could I ever correlate? Yeah, would you have ever guessed Shane, that, that Shane, 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 Shane McGowan, Nipple Erector in the Roxy with the person he became? Yes. And I also did a video for them. I did the video for Summer in Siam. But anyway, <laughs> never mind the Pogue shit. That brother wrote Fairy Tale in New York. Yes, he did. What the? To this, every Christmas, I'm like, what the hell? The song that probably gets played more than Bing Crosby's White Christmas. It's become that will a new be standard. Forever, as long as the human race exists and yes. Christmas exists. That, and I'm like, I used to see this brother out of his mind, smoking weed, doing doing whatever. And it just goes to show you, folks, there's hope for everybody. <laughs> you know, and that's not, we're not even getting into the whole Pope, the body of the Pope's work, which is yes. a masterpiece in itself. Yes. But this one tune that's around the whole planet that connects everybody, at, to this day, I'm like, what the hell? Yes. And Don't he makes a ton of off. money off of that song. I mean, you know, that's at the back of my mind too, but we won't get vulgar about it. Do you know what I mean? But yes. damn, man. Yes. Every year, without fail, I sit there and I go, my God. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Yeah. It is it a beautiful, beautiful piece of music. You know? Yes, it is. So is a yeah, lot of the stuff he wrote. He was you a know, gorgeous songwriter. It, yes. It's cinematic. It tugs at the heart strings. It, you know, it taps into all those emotions. You know, I mean, unbelievable, man. Yes. Anyway, yeah. yes. Respect, yes. Shane. Yeah. Um, okay. Give me one second here. There were some other yeah, yeah, um, yeah. questions that I, and I got to read them up real quick. Okay. So one of our listeners, Brian Morris, tells a story here. Basically, in 1981, The Clash had several week-run shows of Bonds in New York City. I was 15. Clash were on the news every night. They basically took over the city. Peak of their powers. He asked his parents if he could go to the concert. He was 15. They told him no. They thought yeah. it would be too dangerous, too, uh, yeah. too big a crowds. The bootlegs out there are stunning. This was the first band residency that he knows of. Don Letts was hired to film a documentary on the month. Bonds. We're talking about Bonds. We're talking about Bonds, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, called Clash on Broadway, which is yeah. the name yeah. of their box set, which I have. Yeah. But it remains unreleased to this day. One of my wishes is that the band releases a box set of the audio of some of those shows and a documentary by Don. Is there any chance of that happening? Oh man, I'm not know what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not allowed to say. God damn it. There's something in the works that I've been trying to get going that includes what I've found from Clash on Broadway. And that's I, I stress what I found from that because a lot of the stuff got lost over the years. But I can say no more except mm. watch this space. Okay. Just a couple last minute questions. Got- Number one, how do you sleep with your dreadlocks? Easily. Really? <laughs> yeah, I got a big bed, man. They just, <laughs> hang over the, they, they just hang over the back. Really? Okay. That's I didn't know if you bed. kept them in that in that uh, in the cab. No, no, no. You let some air in there, man. Okay. 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 Yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, all right. When you look back on everything, uh, one of the things I want to mention in one of the interviews I read with you, it mentioned that one of your biggest talents might just have been your great taste, and I yeah, think I, that that's. Yeah, pro- I said that. I said that. Because, yes. you know, I don't know if you know that I had a book out last year called There and Black Again. Mm-hmm. Then this brother, William Badgley, makes the, the documentary mm-hmm. Rebel Dread. 
and it, it, it's like, and I'm like, what's all the fuss about? I don't get it. I've just been doing my thing. Uh-huh. And like I said, I came to the conclusion that having said that, you know, I've got to say all the interest in all this stuff does give my work meaning. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to take that for granted. So between the book and the film, I kind of got to own that, mm-hmm. but I was struggling with what the fuss was about. And I sort of read, well, man, you know, man, you know, it seems like I've really got good taste, but in the 21st century, having good taste apparently is some serious fucking currency. So I've been on it from the get go, brother. You know, yes, you yeah. have. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. Um, no, listen, man, I've just been honest about what I like. Yes. You know, and I just like to remain open to all that the world's got to offer, especially if it's got a good baseline. Yes. Yeah, whatever for whatever reason, everything that interested you influenced a ton of other people who went on to make great art because of it. And that's what I mean about you being like the seed or ground zero. You're the guy, you're you know, you're the ripple in the in the lake that influences the tides everywhere else. That's you. Hey dude, if, if I was white, I'd be blushing right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact that you're not white, I think, adds to what what makes you special and what made you interesting and provocative to all of us. Well, you know, I've got to be honest with you. I spent my whole life trying not to be defined by my color. Yeah. You know, it's like whatever you think I am, I am I'm not, man. You know, I, okay. I, I, I can flip on a dime, you know, and yes. I, I reserve that right that not to be trapped by a label. You know, the only label that I, now works for me is Don Letts. Because I'm the only person that can decide what that's about. Yes. Yes. Well, you nailed it. One last question. Did Topper ever almost join Bad? Yes, he did. Yeah, in the early days, but it wasn't called Bad. It was before Bad became Bad. He was definitely there in the early rehearsals before I got on board. I think at that time it was called uh, Top Risk Action Track, T-R-A-C. Yeah, and he was definitely part and did some rehearsals without that. Is true. Okay, okay. Did you stay close to Joe? I've always wondered why there wasn't more of his solo stuff, especially in the eighties. In those first few years, it felt like he was trying to find himself before the oh, Mescaleros yeah, thing. You know, he got it, you know, he went out, spent his time in the wilderness, mm-hmm. found himself, and then got the Mescaleros and Latin, Latin uh, rockabilly and all that stuff together to finally, yeah, be able to stand firm as Joe without yeah. me. Yes. Yeah. Did you ever interact much with Ellen Foley? She's been on here a few times. We're friendly. Funny you should say that. I, I, because of Mick, I made a video for her too. You did? <laughs> I did too. I did a Sons of Europe was one tune uh-huh. and another one called Torchlight. Ah. Not, not amongst know. my finest work, but anyway, <laughs> I was having my arm twisted to make them by Mick. Of course you were. Of course. Uh, anyway, let's not go there. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Just curious. All right. Well, look, Don, uh, you're a legend. I love ah, you very much. Ah, I'm so... ah, yes. no, 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 the legend shit, dude. I'm okay. going to tell you now, that's a work in progress. Okay. One day, you'll say you're a legend. And I'll be like, yes, so what? But okay. I ain't there yet. It, it's a work in progress. You're a legend for me in the sense that, as I was alluding to earlier, the things that interested you uh influenced the people who interested me hey it's all about taste lucky i got some yes that's it (laughs) all right there you have it the great don letts again he's just one of those figures that he was in he had his fingers in everything he touched or influenced 
so many things that influenced other people that also went on to do really incredible things, music, movies, media, whatever it might be, that touched and influenced all of us. Don was kind of at the forefront of all that. He was like patient zero. It's crazy. Anyway, I love the guy. Uh, I want to close it out. We didn't get to as many songs on that solo album that I probably would have liked. This is Out of Sync, the title track. Um, I hope you enjoy it. It's really great. If you like reggae and ska and dub and all that, it's great. Now, I have to give a huge thanks. As I've said before, this whole month we're having guest producers. And this week it's Rob Disner, who's a good buddy of ours. He is great. He's a great follow on Facebook. He's a wonderful guy. And uh, we've uh, various guests from the past are thanks to Rob, to Rob Disner. So we're really lucky to have him this week. Thank you, Rob, for checking in and for helping us out. Next week's guest, we are talking to a member of one of the key British shoegazer bands of the early 90s. Um, they're one of, I love this band. They were short-lived, unfortunately, but their music is fantastic. And if you were into that whole like shimmery shoegaze mixed with Cocteau Twins kind of sound that was so great back then, you'll love this conversation. That's what's coming up next week. Um, huge thanks to Rob. Uh, folks, you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. All right? We'll be back next week. Thanks, everyone. We love you. TikTok.